You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com. April 23rd, 2007. Episode 16, Vincent Horn on Taking the Two-Month Plunge. In this episode, Ryan Olke interviews fellow resident geek, Vincent Horn, who shares his reflections and experiences of a two-month meditation retreat he recently completed. In this first podcast of three, Vince talks about the role of extended retreat in his personal practice, the nuts and bolts of preparing for a long retreat, and the basics of a two-month insight meditation retreat. Whether you're a long-time yogi or considering your first extended retreat, we think you'll enjoy these series of podcasts with this Buddhist geek. This is part one of a three-part series. If you enjoy Buddhist Geeks podcasts, please consider supporting us through either a recurring monthly donation or a one-time donation in amount of your choice. To do so, please visit www.buddhistgeeks.com forward slash donate. We thank you for your support. So Vince, you just returned from a two-month meditation retreat. Um, out in California. Where, where at in California was it? It's in a retreat center that's north of San Francisco in Marin County, uh, the town's Woodacre. Of course, you're a Theravadan practitioner, so it was an uh, insight-based uh, meditation retreat and meditation center? Yeah, it's an um, insight meditation center that's uh, run by Jack Cornfield, who's a real popular insight meditation teacher. Mm-hmm. And what, what's the name of the, re- uh, the retreat center? The name is uh, Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Have you been there before? Is that your first time? Yeah, that was my first time. And uh, normally I go to uh, the Insight Meditation Society, which is uh, is considered the sister center of Spirit Rock. They're kind of the, the big two centers where people uh, go to do intensive retreat practice. What led up to you doing this two-month retreat? I know you've been on longer retreats before. This isn't your first time doing an extended retreat, although I know this is your longest time that you've done one. But is there anything in particular that kind of led you here? Or was it just a natural progression to, to say, hey, I want to do a two-month meditation retreat? Well, there, there are a couple things. Um, one was, like you said, I've done a couple other longer retreats, one six weeks long and the other a month. And since I did those, I've kind of become a long retreat junkie. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I, that's what, at least that's what I tell people. Right. And so I, there's something about doing an intensive practice for that long. That's, I don't know. It's, it's so fulfilling and it, it, it kind of, it just gets me really deep mm-hmm. into the practice. So having tasted that, it's hard for me to want to go, you know, sit for a day or even a week. I, I just feel like if I'm going to go do it, why well, might as well just do it for a couple months, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you go all out basically rather than, yeah. And you know, I'm talking with Reggie Ray, I had a conversation with him and he is really all about, um, the longer meditation retreats. And I wonder how you feel about the daily practice. Like how does that fit in compared to your longer retreats? I asked Reggie if he felt kind of like, uh, if, if uh, the daily practice was sort of a maintenance in between the longer retreats, because the longer retreats is where it all happens. Do you mm-hmm. feel sort of like that? or It's an interesting question. I, I do think up to a certain point in my practice, daily practice was a maintenance. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, it's kind of something shifted, and I feel like the practice continues to unfold, albeit mm-hmm. a lot slower. Right. In my daily life, too. And I, I remember telling my wife, uh, Emily, um, 
and this is the first time I've said this because usually I'm all about retreat practice. I told her daily practice is as important as retreat practice. And she said, oh, my God, I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> so something shifted. Something shifted in my understanding of those, of oh, those two in the relationship. But I can tell you the other reasons that I, you know, that I chose to do this retreat. I mean, one was that I'm addicted to long retreats. Uh, kind of like kind of like Fleet was saying in in the earlier podcast we had that sort of addiction to plunge experience I, I noticed there's there's kind of that thing going on and then there's also just the fact that I just finished uh, my undergraduate degree and I've been planning this retreat for quite a few years and saving up you know the money and and making the time for it that's I think probably a huge deal for people um, that are practicing in the West. Right. What sort of preparation do you think went into you going to this retreat? Yeah, a lot of it had to do with just getting my finances and getting my relationships and getting all of those things that are normally such a huge part of my daily life. Yeah. Having them all, and including including this project, Buddhist Geeks, right, because right. we just launched before I left. Yeah. Having all of those things kind of taken care of or handled so that when I get back, they're not completely... Um, sunk right and and so it takes a lot of relationship practice calling people talking to them letting them know what i'm doing uh-huh. uh, especially my family and friends and you know letting them know that i'll be in touch with them when i get back right uh, in terms of finances it was saving the money to do it yeah. uh, and then also making sure that when i got back that i had money to live on so that i wasn't freaking out right uh, yeah, <laughs> there's a, there's a lot that goes into it to make a two month meditation retreat happen. It takes a lot of effort. I I would suspect I've only done a month, and I felt like that took a lot of coordination in the relative world to dip out of it for a while. Yeah, it it totally does, and fortunately, being a student for as long as I have been, <laughs> yeah. it makes it a little easier in terms of time, but a yeah. lot harder in terms of finances. Right. And now I'm, I'm going into this phase where it's probably going to be the opposite problem. Get, well, hopefully. <laughs> right. Have the money and no time to go. Right. Great. So, yeah. I mean, it seems like most people, unless you're independently wealthy and just have a lot of time on your hands, uh, it's one of those two things becomes a big challenge and yeah, it's always a balancing act. Right. A little bit more specifics about your retreat. What was the setup? Obviously, a lot of meditation, but what can you say about the structure of the retreat and and what the focus was? Well, um, the insight meditation tradition, they have a, a major emphasis on a couple of things. One is silence. Mm-hmm. So they all of the retreats are held in what's called noble silence. And mm-hmm. basically, from the beginning of the retreat to the very end, there's basically no talking. Uh, some talking with the teachers in private interviews, but none of the retreatants themselves are, are talking with one another. Um, so it's basically a period of complete silence. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, meditation. It's wake up at 5 in the morning, go to sleep at 10. Mm-hmm. And in between there, there's about 12 hours of formal practice where one's doing sitting meditation or walking meditation. And in between the formal times when you're eating or uh, walking around the center or doing some sort of job for the center, mm-hmm. they really emphasize kind of a, a continuity of mindful attention throughout mm-hmm. those periods mm-hmm. as well. So the idea is from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, there's this just continuous thread of attention. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it gets deeper, say, when you're doing formal practice, but it's, it's never abandoned Mm -hmm. Um, and the practice itself is 
uh, called Vipassana, mm-hmm. and it's a kind of insight practice where one's paying attention to phenomena in a very specific way and noticing the three characteristics of those phenomena. So noticing that mm-hmm. everything that arises, uh, it passes. So everything's changing constantly, moment to moment. And not only is it changing, but because the tendency of the mind is to hold on to those changing experiences, there's also this this feeling of uh, contraction or just not being quite satisfied with the way things are because we're constantly trying to hold on to things or solidify them. That's suffering. And then somehow when one looks at experience, you just can't find an abiding sense of me in any of those uh, phenomena. It's just, you know, you can look for it and you can assume it's there, but when you actually sort of look at it, it's not. Um, Mm. So... Basically, in the practice, the technique itself, you know, I don't have to get into the specifics of that unless right. you want me to, but no, that's cool. um, one's trying to notice at all times those characteristics and experience. And along with that, I, I wondered how the how that transition is for you. I know, I mean, again, you've done this a handful of times now, but what's that transition like uh, for you going from, you know, the relative world of lots of doing, lots of changing going on that you're paying attention to maybe getting lost in and then going to a retreat where you're maybe doing the opposite if that's the right kind of words rather than doing anything with it you're just observing it is that do you find it um a little bit of time that it takes to transition or there is there anything that you do in terms of practice different than you would do in in, uh, any other part of the retreat or you just go in and just practice and you know the transition happens naturally well i sleep more <laughs> you sleep more, huh? In the beginning, <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Well, in the beginning, I always, uh, and I think I've heard a lot of uh, practitioners say this. They tend to be tired, and um, all the you know the, called the hindrances tend to be more active, like right. sleepiness, doubt, uh, aversion, those kind of things. I noticed the same thing uh, during my retreat that that I was really sleepy at the beginning, and I actually resisted that. I thought that was something negative, you know, because. I was there to cultivate awareness and I felt like I went the other way. Like I was just totally dull and tired, but listening to you talk about that, it sounds a bit more normal than maybe I'd thought. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's really normal. And every retreat I've been on, that's been the case the first few days. There's just this feeling of being completely dull. And, um, one of the teachers on the retreat, Jack Cornfield, he suggested, well, he said, you can the first three days basically are settling in time and he said you can you know really focus on your breath and try to really concentrate and get focused and clear get the energy raised Mm -hmm. and if you do that really hard and non-stop um you probably could get concentrated about half a day quicker Ah. he's like but you'll probably experience about 10 times as much suffering if you just kind of relax and sort of recognize it you know, that's just the way it is. Uh-huh. And then, you know, you'll eventually get concentrated in about three days and things will start, you know, settling. So you mentioned Jack Cornfield was there. Who else was there uh, leading the retreat? And what was the relationship with teachers? I mean, did you have regular teachings in the evening or were they just there for to consult with periodically? Yeah, there are there about 10 teachers, Jack kind of being the most well-known. And then mm-hmm. I guess I can shoot off a couple names here. Um, Carol Wilson was there, Guy Armstrong, mm-hmm. James Baraz, Sally Clough, uh, John Travis, Howie Cohn, Trudy Goodman. So quite a, a couple others. Yeah, quite a number. Yeah, there were about five in the first 
first half of the retreat that were there, and then they all left. Mm-hmm. And then a new group of teachers came in, and there were about five of them. And we had uh, interviews every other day with, with uh, teachers. So we'd go in to, like, they had these little interview rooms. You'd go in there, and there's two chairs sitting there, and mm-hmm. teachers kind of waiting for you. You go sit down, and they basically ask you about your practice, and you, um, best you can, kind of tell them what's been happening and mm-hmm. then they give you suggestions based on that mm-hmm. and yeah every evening the one entertainment period of the of the day they'd give a dharma talk one teacher would uh, talk for an hour <laughs> yeah it was the entertainment period of the day uh, that's funny you know learn some I mean I would always learn stuff but at the same time it's the only time you know we get to listen to people talk and crack jokes and stuff so do you feel that's helpful actually to have that for people in the evening to have a sort of a break to kind of counteract rigidity in practice? Yeah, yeah, it's nice. It's um, I think it's really helpful. One, because we've been practicing at that point for, you know, 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the mind can tend to start really trying to figure out what's happening and, uh, and can be really kind of caught in some loop. Right. And when the talk happens, for some reason, almost always something clarifies itself for me. Mm-hmm. Um, not always, but most of the time. And I think bringing in that aspect of it's almost kind of a little study period where we're listening to dharma concepts and it somehow that clarifies what's happening in the practice or clarifies some dimension of practice and i actually feel like it really helps people and it's helped me a lot yeah i found it actually pretty powerful um to have during a retreat whereas if i had listened to the same talk outside of the retreat you know i probably would have glossed over it or made it a superficial understanding of it. Um, you sent me away with a few Dharma talks on CD and, and, uh, I didn't expect them to be as powerful as they were. You know, they were pretty simple talks, but they were great when I was on retreat, just that little bit. It, things made much more sense at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It's like somehow the mind is really sensitive or open to those kind of ideas in a way that it's usually not. And so they like hit harder, you know, This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by c for chaos For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.c4chaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting buddhistgeeks.network 
And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.